Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, Knight Frank's weekly research podcast. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Research Analyst at Knight Frank, and I'm joined today by our Head of Residential Research, Tom Bill, and our Head of Retail Research, Stephen Springham. So we've had a bit of a hiatus and we've taken a bit of time out from this podcast and we're coming back with a brand new, shorter, sharper edition that's fair to say, isn't it, Tom? Hi, Anna. Yes, thank you. Good to be back. Yeah, I think short and sharp is great. I'll do my best to be both of those. Stephen, I hear you've had some interesting issues with electricity over the last few days. So um, good to have you with us today. Yes. Good morning, Anna. Good to be back. I've been working through the night just so I can make this podcast this morning. Please report, touch wood, that, that everything will be okay. So this week, Rishi Sunak delivered a budget heavily focused again, yet again, on COVID-19 support measures. And for the property sector, we saw a number of very well-trailed items in there. But one thing that's kind of interesting to look at here, what was left unsaid? Tom, from your perspective, um, thinking about the residential market, what was missing and what do you reckon is the political play behind that? I think there were a couple of things that were missing. The main one, I think, for the property market was probably any news on capital gains tax which I think most people are expecting to become aligned with income tax uh, at some point. So that's the evidence sort of coming back from the market and people who are uh, already sort of disposing of properties in readiness for the rise. I think that was the main one. I think what it shows is a Chancellor who was probably using this budget as a sort of short-term way of getting through the final furlong of the pandemic, if you like. But of course, later this month is probably the date people should be looking out for even more closely than the budget, which is the 23rd of March, which is when the government launches a whole raft of consultations on on tax change, excluding the three, the so-called triple lock of national insurance, VAT, and income tax. But I think anything else is pretty much up for grabs. Okay. And I think probably at that point, if the government launches a consultation on, on capital gains tax, you can pretty much, you know, bet on the fact that it's going to come in. It's quite a break from the normal routine though, isn't it? Having a sort of separate tax day. I mean, do you think it will be in for some pretty big measures then down the tracks? Potentially, absolutely. I think Rishi Sunak wants to plug the hole in the finances because that's, you know, that's going to be his legacy to some extent. He's probably not looking necessarily even at the next election, but the one after that, if he has higher political ambitions. So there's a lot of pressure for them to do something around taxes. The Office for Tax Simplification has looked at capital gains tax and aligning it to income tax. It feels like it's something that's inevitable. I I think if CGT is in the mix later this month, it's much more of a certainty that we'll eventually see rates aligned to income tax, probably later this year, the autumn budget. Interesting. And Stephen, there's been a lot of talk in the press around so-called online sales tax, but that seemed distinctly missing from the budget. Do you think that could ever materialise later in the year or or in in the future at least? Yes. I mean, it's a lot of what we heard yesterday um, felt like old news because so much of it had been sort of pre-released, if you like. One thing that was definitely missing, as you say, but had been been telegraphed was an online tax. No mention of that whatsoever yesterday. I mean, I think the facts are Obviously, the business rates reform is necessary and online tax or in some shape or form has been touted as a way of, of levelling out the playing field, if you like. But any mention of it was, was sort of conspicuous by its absence yesterday. The thing about an online tax is it, it seems a, a, a simple solution. The reality is it's anything but. I mean, when people think of online, people tend to think of Amazon as a sort of standard bearer. But obviously, online pure plays so an operator that doesn't have any stores only make up a fraction of the market less than 10 percent so 
you know, as we've argued for, for long and hard, retail is multi-channel. So it's a very complex thing, introducing a, a, a tax that is really going to harm those that it's de- designed to help, really. Do you, would you say you're broadly in favour? I mean, if you're to pick a side here, I mean, do you think it could be a good thing, even if it's unexplored? It, depend, it depends how it's implemented. I mean, there are there are a num- number of options or scenarios, if you like. I mean, a straight online tax won't work, I don't think, in my opinion, because, you know, it's very hard to discern what is an online sale these days. You know, there's there's so many shades of grey. Um, you know, it's not a case of that's an online sale, that isn't an online sale. It's like, is, is a click and collect order an online sale? You know, how do you deal with product returns? Yeah. So, I don't think that will work. I mean, other alternatives are Tesco put this forward, you know, that there's a tax only on online pure plays. Again, that's not without complication. You know, Amazon is Amazon a pure play anymore? Even today, it's opening an Amazon Go store. You know, it owns Whole Foods. You know, it could argue it's not a pure play. So, again, it's not straightforward. I suppose possibly, um, you know, and this would tie into the green agenda as well, if, if they actually limit it to deliveries, so home deliveries and actually do it as a green tax rather than an online tax. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, that would sort of fit in the wider vision, wouldn't it? And Tom, on the question of tax, I mean, clearly one of the big things in the budget is stamp duty. And actually, as I was watching it, I think when the mention of a taper came in, that to me seemed to be the kind of, I don't think a surprise is quite the right word, but something that wasn't completely trailed. No, it hadn't been trailed. As Stephen said, most of the budget seems to have been um, pretty widely publicised over, over recent days. The fact a, a three-month stamp duty extension came in wasn't a surprise. It had been on the on the front page of the Times about a week ago. Mm. The taper was a surprise. I think what it showed is that the government has listened to the industry. So that it was quite a positive sign that the government mm. sort of got why a cliff edge around stamp duty is a bad thing. I think you're still going to have a fairly large cliff edge, though, for most of the country. If you're transacting on a £500,000 property, you will be paying zero up until the end of the holiday. Between the 1st of July and the end of September, however, you'll be paying £12,500. So it's still a pretty steep cliff edge at the higher end of the tax-free rate. And probably what that actually does is create a little bit of distortion around the country. So it's probably not as simple as a north-south divide, but there are certain markets where if the property price is sort of £300,000, £250,000, it's going to feel uh, much more beneficial. It's going to be less of an issue in certain parts of the country than in others. So London, for example, the cliff edge is going to seem very real for most people still at the end of June. So I think it just demonstrates it's, it, how difficult it is to, to unimplement a stamp duty tax, if that's the word. So bringing one in is very simple, but withdrawing one is quite complicated. Yeah. It's a tricky thing to unwind. But more broadly, I think an ever-changing tax landscape around sort of buying and selling a house can really affect and distort patterns of behaviour. But we're starting to see signs emerge, I think, this year of that seasonality returning. What about for first-time buyers? I mean, the government, 95% mortgage. um, If you're a first-time buyer in London, just given the affordability issues, will that make a real difference, do you think? I think it will. But to use a cliche around budgets, the devil will be in the detail and we'll we'll see where lenders price these 95% mortgages. So is it actually financially a good thing for somebody to take one of these mortgages that are backed by the government? Are other routes probably financially better for them? So we'll see how lenders start pricing these new 95% mortgages. I think that'll be telling uh, and that will have you know, that'll have a direct bearing on how much they're taken up. Uh, Stephen, to jump back to retail, what was your sort of reaction to the sort of key headlines in the budget? 
I mean, aside from from business rates, which is obviously the burning topic, the restart grants, five billion seems a big number, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's fairly small, particularly when you drill down to what that actually means on the ground. I mean, the the caps are six thousand pounds for non-essential retail businesses opening in April. You know, if you want to take a very extreme example, Primark. It stores average around fifty thousand pounds a day. That's less than an hour's trading. So, mm. five billion seems a big, big number until you to actually sort of put it in the context of what a retailer would normally trade and has lost over the over the the last year or so. So, um, yes, it's yeah, we welcome it, but it's it's never going to be enough to to make up for the shortfall. No, it's, I mean, extraordinary times. I mean, we did see a glimmer of hope yesterday, didn't we, in terms of economic forecasts and output being revised upwards. And actually, it looks like we're on track to recover to pre-pandemic level in the second quarter of 2022, so earlier than expected. Of course, these are forecasts only. Tom, just thinking about this revised backdrop, what does that mean for your thinking around sort of house prices and where all that will go for the rest of the year? It's something that we're going to constantly keep an eye on and we'll look at the effects of the extended stamp duty holiday uh, and we'll probably at some point fairly soon revise you know, our forecasts as well. I think it just underlines how resilient economies are generally and the UK economy in particular and the housing market, which has continued to surprise on the upside you know, since, since the pandemic first struck. A narrative did take hold that the furlough would end, unemployment would spike, and house prices would crash. And, and that has gradually almost completely dissipated now. And we're seeing the government talking about house price increases this year. Nobody was talking about house price increases nine months ago. Yeah. It it really has underlined its resilience. There will be weaknesses. Obviously, you know, the ending of furlough is going to have an impact. There, there will be longer-term repercussions from the pandemic that will play out. But it, I don't think that's simplistic story around house prices crashing as furlough ends, that's just not going to come to pass. There will be weakness in the housing market as a result and confidence will also play its part. And Stephen, for retail, I mean, there's been quite a bit around the amount of money that British households have have saved up. I think it's 125 billion, which is uh, quite a remarkable figure. But what's what's the sort of mood music amongst retailers when you talk to them? I mean, do you think that the British public will be spending kind of when non-essential retail opens in April? Absolutely. It's really about consumers having the money and having the will to spend it. And I think, you know, having been locked down for so long, that will is most definitely there. I mean, the least of, of the retail sector's worries, I think, is is the consumer. I think the consumer will be there and will spend. We're pretty bullish about, about retail sales for this year. But again, retail sales and, and the health of the high street aren't necessarily one and the same you know i think it would be a mistake to look at retail sales and and assume that everything has recovered on the high street because a lot of those those wounds from the past year are going to take a very long time to heal are you hearing much around sort of conversions from retail to residential i know that's quite a kind of challenging area isn't it and you've written quite a bit about it I'm hearing a lot about it. I'm not seeing a lot of it. I think there's a, a big mismatch between what is people think is possible and, and what is actually happening. Yes, obviously, there is a lot of distress on the high street. There's a lot of vacant floor space. Um, the logical conclusion is that floor space can be converted to other uses, be they residential, other commercial or or specialist. It's not as easy as that in many cases. I mean, values really have to align. Geographies have to align. It's a more complicated play, a more expensive play than than they maybe realise. It's quite a permanent change, isn't it, Stephen? When you put Resi on a high street, I mean, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's it's understanding the sort of nature of the vacancy. A lot of retail vacancy isn't big, convenient blocks. It's you know one unit, one store here. 
it's very piecemeal. They might be under disparate ownership. Shopping centres, again, there's a lot of narrative around this, but but very few are completely unfit for purpose, if you like. So most plays that we are seeing coming forward, and we're, we're acting on a couple in Orpington and, and Maidenhead being two off the top of my head, you know, the role of retailers change. It will have a smaller footprint, but it will still be there as part of a, a, a mixed-use regeneration project. So to, uh, to wrap up then, I guess we could say the budget was somewhat of a non-event and that we're still waiting for quite a few developments. And I think the 23rd of uh, March will certainly be a really interesting one to watch. I think I'll have to get you all back on the podcast again to kind of go over that. Before we go, though, we're going to be wrapping up with some slightly under-the-radar stories. Um, Tom, have you, have you got any thoughts on that? I'm going to pick on you first. I think what's happening at the moment in the rental market is actually a fascinating insight into, into the behaviour of people in the property market and also the city. If you look at what's happening in, in central London at the moment, rents have fallen by sort of 13, 14% over the last year. A lot of short-let Airbnb type stock has come onto the market and international students, international corporate tenants have stayed away. So the conditions have been created for this sort of fairly substantial reset in terms of the rent. Now, what that's done is actually drawn people back into the city. So we did some analysis looking at the, at the area of prime central London and, and where our tenants were coming from. And those tenants coming from outside the area were now coming from, on average, three miles away compared to one and a half miles uh, 12 months ago. What it shows is that there is, there is demand. There is demand to live near you know big shops and big parks and people are thinking beyond the end of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think ultimately things will start to revert back to normal. They might, won't go back to where they were, but there will be a reversion back towards where they were. And that includes city centre living. And Stephen, um, clearly retail is constantly in the news. What have you spotted that's interesting? A bit under the radar on, on the online side of things, um, online grocery. Asda announced this week that they're going to close their two dark stores. Dark stores are essentially stores that aren't open to the public, but they serve as online delivery hubs. For those of us that have covered the market, you know, 10 years ago, these were the way forward or people perceived them to be the way forward. This was the future of grocery shopping. And obviously, online grocery has spiked massively over the last year. But I think what it shows is the big four grocers prefer to service online through their stores. The key message really is that, you know, online doesn't equal non-store. And the fact is stores will play a fundamental role in, in all aspects of retailing, including online. Great. Thank you so much, Tom and Stephen, and I'm sure we'll see you back again shortly. Next week, my co-host, Patrick Gower, will be hosting a podcast looking at our wealth report. Uh, So don't miss that. That will be next Friday. And for more of our analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. So please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. (laughs) 